Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Economies Design Lab at CU Boulder. Having access to the internet is something many of us might take for granted. During the last few years of global pandemic, online spaces offered connectivity for social life, work, and education in the everyday. Similar to other infrastructures of daily life, like electricity, the realities of internet connectivity rely on complex systems of wires, satellites, and something even less easy to see, public policy. Additionally, it's more evident after the last few years that some parts of the country are more connected than others. As someone who grew up in the rural Midwest cornfields of Indiana, I know firsthand how certain regions of the flyover states specifically lack internet access or experience significantly slower internet speeds compared to other suburban or city-densely populated areas. And what I've experienced, these issues are not frequently covered in media conversations or even in academic research spaces. Questions about how or why things are the way they are emerge in these moments of lived experience. So, why are some Americans more connected than others? How does this happen? What can we do about it? And what are some ways that policy has failed so many of us? Today, we're speaking with someone whose research and advocacy efforts have been centered around broadband access in the rural Midwest of the United States. We are exploring the question of the role of broadband policy and internet access to learn more about the complexities of lived experiences in a time where it is assumed that everyone has access to the internet. Dr. Christopher Ali is a Pioneer's Chair in Telecommunications and Professor of Telecommunications at Penn State University. His research interests include media and telecommunications policy and regulation, broadband policy, critical political economy, critical geography, comparative media systems, qualitative research methods, media localism, and local news. In 2021, Dr. Ali's book, Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity from MIT Press, examines the complicated terrain of rural broadband policy in the United States. This work explores the politics of broadband policy, asking why millions of rural Americans lack broadband access and why the federal government and large providers are not doing more to connect the unconnected. It also led him to testify before the Senate Commerce Committee on Broadband Funding and Policy Programs and further advocacy efforts in New York and in D.C. This month, Dr. Ali is an author on a project that's being released about PBS and public trust. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Ali. We're really excited that you're here and that we're having this conversation with you today, and we appreciate your time. Absolutely. Really excited to be here. So to kind of start our conversation, I was kind of wanting to start essentially at the beginning of your work, which is, mm -hmm. what is broadband? 
Like, do we have a definition for it? How does it work? Like, why did it capture your attention, maybe? And anything you want to share related to broadband itself? Yeah, I mean, all really great questions to start us off. So broadband has an official definition, an unofficial definition, and then kind of a more expansive definition. So the official definition of broadband is an always-on internet connection of 25 megabits per second download, 3 megabits per second upload. Super technical, super based on speed, super outdated, right? This, this is a definition from 2015 and doesn't even come close to capturing how much speed and data we actually consume eight years later. The kind of more unofficial uh, definition would be a high-speed internet connection that allows us to participate in digital life. Right, that allows us to do things like Zoom and stream and, and telework and education and read and all the things that we want to be able to do. And broadband needs to be able to encompass that on our phones or tablets or computers. But there's also a much more expansive definition. And I think this is where a lot of folks are gravitating towards now, which is that broadband is so much more than just connectivity. And so one of the things we'll hear a lot are terms like digital equity and digital inclusion. So for instance, broadband is connectivity. Yes. Do I have access to a network? But it's also affordability. Can I afford a monthly subscription? There are millions and tens of millions of Americans who cannot afford a monthly subscription. So even if a broadband network passes by their house, do they actually have broadband? So there's connection, there's affordability, there's hardware. Do I have a computer? Do I have a smartphone? Do I have a tablet? Right? There's also skills and knowledge. Do I have the knowledge I need? to be able to take advantage of this network. And last but not least, there's technical support and upgrades, right? Do I have a community at my disposal to be able to help me through the hard digital times, right? So broadband is so much more than just connectivity. And that's a definition that I'm definitely gravitating towards. In fact, I'm here in Las Vegas actually about to uh, give a pretty big speech to the Reservation Economic Summit. And one of the things I'll be talking about is when we think about broadband, when we think about the term, the digital divide, we need to be thinking so much more expansively along these lines of digital equity and digital inclusion. So that's the spiel about broadband. To your second point of how I got interested in this. So I'm a communication policy scholar by training, and I wrote my dissertation, which we became my first single author book on local television policy in Canada, the United States and the United Kingdom. And then I moved on and I did some work on local newspapers. But in the back of my brain, I remember having a conversation with my advisor 10, 12 years ago, goodness. And he said, okay, you can either do a global study or a study on the internet, but you can't just do a, a study on television in the United States because no one talks about TV anymore. And I, at that point, I thought, well, writing about the internet, that seems really scary and really big. So Let's talk about television in a couple of different countries. So it's always kind of been in the back of my mind as something that I needed to learn what is going on here. So when I originally started kind of transitioning work into, into broadband, I imagined a book on how farmers use broadband, hence the title of my book, which is Farm Fresh Broadband. But it actually turns out that farm broadband and farm communication is part of this much larger ecosystem called rural broadband, which is part of a much larger ecosystem called broadband policy. So I started kind of incrementally, but it was a huge learning curve. I mean, broadband is so technical and technological, as is broadband policy. So it took me years before I even told anyone I was writing on this subject. And I think this is one of the reasons why I really sympathize with communities who are struggling to kind of predict and capture their digital futures, which is that broadband technologies, broadband policies, broadband monies, they're not written for communities, right? They're written for lawyers of AT&T and Verizon. 
So in just the same way that I, I had to kind of grapple with these technical and technological terms, I want to make sure that no one else has to do that. So I spend a lot of time translating, translating broadband technologies, translating broadband policies to make sure that communities can take charge of their digital futures. Mm. And for me, like, I love that. I know we have briefly encountered before and just like learning about your work for me was like super empowering in some ways just because Thank I grew you. up in those cornfields and like I grew yeah. up in that like rural part of the country <laughs> and you're absolutely right like there's so many farmers and even just small communities that just don't have what I've encountered you know since moving away from there and kind of seeing all of these technical terms and stuff it's very intimidating I think in a lot of ways. For sure. The jargon yeah, it, it, is, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just like very, very strong. And like you said, like technical and technological. And for a lot of people, it may not seem even accessible to even talk about or have the words to talk about what they're experiencing. So right. I, I love that you've kind of encountered and also written about those experiences. And that leads me to my next question, which really kind of going off of this idea of the lived experience and the rural, the agricultural mm -hmm. Midwest, could you tell us more about why you chose to kind of talk with those people? And how were you able to connect with them and like across so many different states? Because I know your book takes place across many different, you know, Midwestern states. Yeah, so, yeah. How, how did that journey happen? You know, <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yeah. So I started off as kind of any good policy scholar does reading and analyzing policy, right? tens of thousands of pages. I think I read 15,000 pages worth of policy and doing documented analysis and really trying to get a handle on, okay, what are we trying to do when we say we're going to end the digital divide and we're talking about rural broadband? Like, what is the federal government thinking about? And then I turned to my next method, which is a method that I often use, which is expert and elite interviews. You know, I, I interviewed regulators and internet service providers and activists and, and public interest folks. When I started writing my book, this would have been in uh, 2017, early, early, early 2018, I also realized that, well, maybe someone, maybe folks don't want to read a 300-page book about policy analysis. I, in other words, I needed to humanize broadband because one of the things I, I found both in my research and, and in my later work doing advocacy is at the end of the day, broadband is about people. It's not about technology and it's certainly not about policy and it's absolutely not about money, but that's how we seem to collapse it. And so in order to humanize broadband, I realized I needed to go on the road. And, you know, thank goodness, I had made all of these amazing contacts through these kind of elite and expert interviews. So I started marshalling my contacts and saying, all right, like, I want to interview folks, who do I know who's in Kentucky? And then I would I would send some emails out, and hopefully they would set me up with some interviews. I used a lot of snowball sampling. And the reason I chose the Midwest is because I always had, you know, going back to the original point of the book, it was about row crops and broadband. And where do we grow row crops? And it's in the Midwest. And so that's, you know, I could I could have picked a lot of different areas. I mean, the word rural is certainly so much larger than farms. And I, I try to make that point in the book that I talk about rural, but I'm not reducing it just to agriculture, right? I mean, rural Alaska in the tundra is rural. Rural Maine and its islands is rural. R California vineyards is rural, right? So rural is so big. I, for the purpose of just writing of writing the book, really wanted to focus on the farming communities of the Midwest. And it just, it snowballed from there. So we called it, and I say we, because it was my hound dog, Tuna and I, called it the Rural Broadband Road Trip. We left in Charlottesville, Virginia. We drove west to Missouri and then north all the way up to Winnipeg, Manitoba. This took two weeks. And along the way, you know, we stopped in every community we could and 
Sometimes I would cold email folks. Other times I would use my resources and my networks. Sometimes Tuna and I would just be walking down the street and someone wanted to pet Tuna. And then I would say, hey, how's your internet? Tuna and I are here talking about the internet and researching the internet. So using using all of these kind of resources at my disposal, I think really helped flesh out what I'm trying to say about the failures of policy to bring broadband to rural communities. Mm. Yeah, and I'm I'm really struck by too, like this idea of just the humanness, I suppose, of yeah. all that you kind of do. And that was something I've also been really intrigued by and also impressed by while reading your work is it it feels very human. And so I'm also wondering, just like as a researcher, perhaps, or just as a person in general, what kind of prompted you to want that more human approach? I know you mentioned, I don't want to write a policy book, right? I don't want to, you know, do any number of other things. But I guess like, what is it about the human like lived experience that's so captivating for you and motivated so much of yeah, this project? That's that's a great question. Thank you. So my first book is called Media Localism, The Politics of Place. And not to say that it's not human, but, but it's very policy. And, you know, when you're on the tenure track in academia, a lot of times you're writing that first book to get tenure, right? It's based on the dissertation. Got to get tenure. Got to get tenure to have a permanent job. I knew whatever it was I wanted to do for my next project, I wanted it to be more accessible. And, you know, I thought, again, policy analysis would be would be the way to go. But one of, one of some of the best advice I ever got was from an editor that I was working with. And she told me that I had to read more fiction because I had to remember how to tell stories because I was writing like a policymaker. Because, you know, you're reading so much policy. And how do we tell stories is that we talk to people. And I don't lose track of the policy. I'm still a policy scholar by heart. But why do we have policy if not to help people? And if that's the case, we got to talk to people. Uh, we got to get out of the beltway. We got to get out of big cities, you know, or at least I did. And what a joy it's been. In fact, my new work coming up is going to be almost exclusively about stories. Stories are powerful and stories can be evidence and stories can inform policy. And that's kind of the route and the trajectory that I've noticed I've been taking in the last five, six years of my work is storytelling to make better policy. Mm. And you bring a policy, right? You you do bring it up. Um, and I, I love that you A couple do. of times, yeah. 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 <laughs> Obviously, like that's kind of your your thing in many ways. But I will also see too, like policy as someone who, you know, doesn't necessarily spend the most time reading it, it seems similar to what we were talking about with just the word broadband. It's it's intimidating. It's sometimes so oh, intricate, yeah. it's so complex. And so I'm curious, like as you're kind of navigating those like national and local like levels of policy what are some of the explorations surrounding broadband specifically in the u.s and what were some of your findings like how how did you get the documents or like where did you turn and then how do you track money or like any of the trends that came up from the policy to the implementation to talking with people on the road and kind of how did you navigate all of that yeah, data yeah i mean <laughs> um Believe it or not, I printed off everything. So if you ever come to my office at Penn State, I have binders of policy. <laughs> because for me, the, I learn through the printed page. One of the, one of the great things about the United States and the Federal Communications Commission, however, is that 99% of a lot of things are accessible online. So a lot of it is, is following down these rabbit holes. And these rabbit holes are found in footnotes of policy documents, right? Like it's referencing something and then you go read it. 
following the money was a little bit trickier because one of the major things that I found in my book is that we, we being the federal government, has subsidized the largest telecommunications companies to the tune of billions of dollars over the last almost 20 years now. And they've absolutely failed to connect rural, remote, and Indigenous communities. So, you know, it meant a lot of databases, a lot of spreadsheets, just trying to figure out how much money did each company get. And the, the, the number is still opaque, which makes it really difficult. I mean, I saw an estimate that said that from 2009, I think, to 2017, we have put in around $49 billion into broadband. Which begs the question that in 2017, we said it would cost $80 billion to connect 100% of this country with fiber optics. So 49 is is more than halfway of 80. Why haven't we done this yet? And that's where I think being a critical scholar is really helpful here. Because one of the things it's helped me do, you know, thinking through critical theory and challenging the status quo is looking for taking for granted notions. And that allows me to think about policy failure and and where has the money gone and problematizing a lot of this. Why haven't we been able to do this, right? And we haven't been able to do this because we've just trusted the largest telecommunications companies out there to do this work with very little accountability. Yeah. And that was something too that I was really struck by is just where is the accountability, especially because, you know, $49 billion is not like, here's like four cents or something. Like, it's like, that's like a yeah, lot no, of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a substantial amount of money. And um, well, you were also talking to, I know you you mentioned the FCC, and I know that's the Federal Communications Commission, but I'm curious, could you kind of break down for people, like, how does the FCC impact or like have role in broadband? And like, how does that relationship kind of work? Yeah, that's a great question. And let's try and condense this so that we don't spend the next 25 minutes of this podcast walking through the politics of the FCC. So the Federal Communications Commission is in charge with regulating, well, telecommunications and broadcasting in this country. One of the things that it does particular with broadband is that it's charged with defining broadband. So that definition, that 25, 3, 25 megabits per second down, 3 megabits per second up definition comes from the Federal Communications Commission. It's also in charge of monitoring deployment and creating the national broadband map, which is going through a lot of challenges right now. The other thing it has done in the past is fund broadband for so-called high cost areas, which generally means rural broadband. Why don't we have companies providing broadband to rural America? Well, they will tell you that there's not enough people there and broadband is expensive and they can't get a return on investment. So we need to subsidize them. And the FCC traditionally has been in charge of these subsidies, and it controls roughly $8 billion through something called the Universal Service Administrative Company. And that goes to lowering the cost of broadband for subscribers, to sub- subsidizing providers to actually get wires closer to homes. It also provides money for uh, rural health centers so that they can be connected in schools and libraries. Now, I said that you know the FCC hasn't been a great kind of oversight agency, and that's true. And it's so much true that In the Infrastructure Act, Congress actually moved most of the deployment money, $42 billion, to another agency. And I think it's really indicative of how the FCC has lost a lot of public trust in how they've handled public money when it comes to broadband. And so they're still in charge of running a program called the Affordable Connectivity Program, which subsidizes broadband upwards of $30 a month for low-income families, $75 a month for low-income families on tribal land. And they're still in charge of that other, you know, that other billions through the Universal Service Administrative Company. But the big money that's coming from the Infrastructure Act is actually going to another agency now. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. 
Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Christopher Ali about broadband, policy, internet access, and the public. It's really great when you follow the money, to be honest. Like, it it really is like... It it really, yeah, yeah. I'm like always fascinated by that myself, but just even with your work, just seeing kind of the flows and like what you're like noting, I was like, ah, this is making more sense. But in another sense, it's also like, with the question of like, where is it going? You know, if it's not doing what it was supposed to do. Here's an example of that. So in 2015, the FCC defines broadband at 25, three, 25 megabits per second down, three megabits per second up. They've got a billion dollars that they're able to spend on broadband deployment to areas that do not receive that kind of connectivity, right? So they identify the 10 largest telecommunications companies. They're called price cap carriers. And they say, Here's the areas you serve. Here's the areas close to these areas that are unserved. Here's the amount of money we are prepared to give you. CenturyLink, for instance, got $505 million a year. And we expect you to, you know, with this money, bring broadband to unserved communities. But here's the kicker. They defined broadband at 10.1, not 25.3. What's the implication there? It means that these telecommunications companies didn't have to deploy to rural communities using the best technology, they just had to deploy what I call good enough technology, something that would hit that 10-1 threshold, not the 25-3 threshold. And so what we end up seeing are these pockets now of under-connectivity because of the legacy failures of these programs. So, and this is particularly true when we compare two types of technologies. There's digital subscriber line, DSL, which was all the heyday in like 1999 because it was considered super fast broadband then, but it can't really measure up to the type of connectivity we need today. And that's why we're so bullish about fiber optics. What we saw in 2015 though, was a lot of these price cap carriers rolling out DSL because they were still meeting the letter of the law. DSL can get you to 10.1. It can also get you to 25.3, but it really struggles doing you know the really high speeds that we need today, for instance, to do a Zoom call. So we've got these rural communities, some of whom are connected legally, right, but are unconnected in practice. And those are the ones who are really going to see struggle because since they're technically connected, they're not eligible for any more federal money. And this is where we've seen the digital divide oftentimes not shrink, but grow because some communities are getting connected. Others are falling behind and being underconnected. And then some are leapfrogging ahead with fiber optic cable. It is so uneven. Some folks have called it a Swiss cheese pattern of broadband, where you've got some communities with no connectivity, others with amazing connectivity, and then others with subpar, but technically connected technologies. And it is a mess right now. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. Um, It doesn't sound like things are very cohesive in this space. And it also is making me wonder, too, because... You know, just knowing a little bit about the FCC and like some of the charges for accessibility, but also like competition. And so I'm curious, mm-hmm. like through what you've experienced, for example, with companies like Comcast, you know, sometimes I feel like there's 
maybe entire monopolies of service, like different states are like, this is our carrier. And I'm curious about, you know, what you've noticed with those kinds of trends and like, is there competition actually happening? And then like, what's going on between like someone like CenturyLink or Comcast or, you know, if they're getting different types of money, like what does this, you know, enable or not? So there's very little broadband competition. Most communities actually only have one provider. They'd be like if they had two. Oftentimes, this is also the provider that has previously received money, which means that it's very expensive for another provider who can't get subsidized to come in and compete. What does this mean when we've got a local monopoly on telecommunications? And you know, other times it could be a cable company, right? Like if you go to Philadelphia, it's all Comcast. Where I, I recently moved to State College, Pennsylvania, it's almost entirely Comcast as well. Because it's very expensive to build a second network on top of a network that already exists, especially if you can't get federal money. What happens when we have a monopoly? Well, prices can go through the roof because there's no competition. This is why we often find rural communities paying upwards of, I saw one city that said 30% more, right? Because they've got one provider who doesn't have to worry. And, and kind of piggybacking off of this, we've seen a number of rural communities want to actually get involved themselves in broadband to be municipal providers. But right now, 18 states prohibit that from happening. Even though we know that if a community gets into broadband itself, it will often raise raise speeds and lower prices because you actually have competition. But we've pretty much privileged telephone and cable companies at the expense of these other alternative providers. That being said, there are two providers that are doing some amazing work right now. And these are telephone and electric cooperatives. These are the companies that we trusted and informed in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s to connect rural communities with, first with electricity and then with telephone. They are doing some incredible work connecting unconnected communities and are really, you know, kind of driving the needle here. But they, you know, from a funding perspective, they were really neglected. So they were doing it on their own dime for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of rural electric and telephone cooperatives because they're, they're really the ones who are doing the connecting, not these big giant companies. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, this is also making me think about the role of utilities. And I've heard in recent years, like I feel like some of the conversations about broadband or overall just like the digital divide and stuff is they're like, we need to treat internet access like it's a utility. And I'm curious, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're thinking about broadband as, you know, water or electricity, like does that help, you know, the future? Or is this something that you're hesitant towards? And like, how do you kind of navigate those kinds of arguments. I mean, absolutely. March 2021, President Biden says broadband is the next electricity, right? Broadband needs to be a utility. And I I think a lot of people think about it as a utility. The problem is the legal definitions of utilities, and that's where things get in the way. And there's two complications. One is that utilities is often regulated at the state level, but in the United States, telecommunications is regulated at the federal level. So we've got an impasse there, right? The other problem, and this gets into the weeds of policy, which is so much fun. So there's this thing called network neutrality, right? Network neutrality says that your internet service provider cannot discriminate against the type of content that you choose, right? They can't slow down Facebook or speed up. I was about to say MySpace, but no one's using MySpace and TikTok. Oh my God. They also can't charge you more for accessing certain sites, right? That's also the way we think about utilities right? You're charged by the amount of electricity you use, not by what you're using the electricity for. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, You're not charged more if you have a TV than if you have a lamp. 
Now, okay, so that's all fine and said and good. This is why we want utilities, why we regulate utilities, to make sure we don't see this type of discrimination. The Federal Communications Commission is in charge of, of this idea of network neutrality, but we don't have network neutrality regulation on the book. And this is because we regulate internet service providers as, it's called an information service. We basically like don't regulate them at the federal level in terms of content, in terms of interconnection, in terms of you know all of, all of these things. And because of that, and I'll come back to network neutrality, we can't legally call them utilities because they're actually codified in a different section of the Telecommunications Act. Oh, goodness. And this is really frustrating. So you might you might see a lot of folks say we need to reclassify internet service providers as a telecommunications service, which means we could have net neutrality, which means we could start thinking about them as a legal utility. But until that happens at the federal level, there's very little we can do. So Congress tried a couple of times to force the FC to do this, but it never actually made it through the Senate. So it's it very political, it's very complicated. So I do, yeah, this is a very long way of saying that I think there are two parallel conversations. One, there's the everyday conversation of, of broadband as a utility, right? And I think 99.99% of us think about it as a utility. It's a good, it's a public good. It is a social good. It is good for the public, right? Like water and electricity and sewage, one bucket. The other is this very, very challenging political and legal bucket. And that's where we're struggling. Mm. I know this is, you know, a question that perhaps all of us are trying to grapple with too, but how did this happen? Like, why is it so complicated? Politics. Politics. Because there is billions of dollars at stake here, and there are massive companies involved. We're talking AT&T. We're talking Comcast. We're talking Charter. We're talking Verizon, right? And, and they don't want to be forced to serve communities that they deem as you can't see my hands, but I'm making quotation marks, everybody, unprofitable, right? That they don't get the massive return on investment that their shareholders demand, mm. right? If they were a utility, they would have to, by law, serve everybody, right? They don't want any of that. They spend huge amount of money on lobbying at the federal level and also huge amounts of money lobbying at the state level. So, you know, there's, this is, it's, it's for good reason, I think, that the subtitle of, of my book is called The Politics of rural connectivity because it's all about politics mm. um and this is why i think you know i hope that by bringing people into this conversation actual humans who are living through these policy failures that maybe we can start swaying policymakers to get on the side of good yeah yeah i mean there is there is yet hope right but i indeed there's always hope i'm also just like really struck again going back to kind of how all this started, right? And you're talking to people on the road and like you're thinking through all these things, you're seeing how all of it's manifesting in the day-to-day, -day, the everyday life. And I'm curious, like, are there any like noteworthy stories that really kind of prompted you to like want to push further or to ask more questions? Or was there essentially like anything that really just stood out to you that you were like, this is wrong or like this could be so much better? I mean, there, there's, so, there's so many of this is wrong, but there's also some great stories of this is oh so right. Um, and one of the stories I tell in my book is from Rock County, Minnesota, where this, this community came together. They wanted fiber to the home. They wouldn't take anything less than fiber to the home. They found an, a telephone cooperative who was willing to do that. They bonded themselves for a million dollars against their tax revenue. The cooperative put in $6 million. The state put in money. So you saw these amazing partnerships emerge out of this. And now Rock County is one of the most connected counties in the state of Minnesota. Like that kind of ingenuity and digital championship 
it is so inspiring to me. And I tell the story about Rock County a lot, and I think it's just fabulous. Another one that I don't cover in my book, but I think is certainly noteworthy, is Amon, Idaho. Amon, Idaho has a municipal network, a public, publicly funded fiber to the home network. So they, you know, they thought about like infrastructure, right? The the community owned the the hardware, the wires. Then they allow private internet service providers to sit on top and offer retail broadband you know, so that we can actually access the internet. But the the hardware, like the highway system, is owned by the community. Brilliant, 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 right? And then you can, and then folks can pick and choose for themselves which ISP they want, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, just having one, you know, they well, they just have one wire to the home, which is, which is ideal. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if we had, like, roads, one network, mm-hmm. and then, you know, other, you know, private companies or public companies could sit on top of that. And here's the thing, you'd ask how all of this started. And and at the end of the day, what what is getting in the way is capitalism, right? By treating broadband as a commercial good rather than as a as something that is good for society, America or a club good or a public good, depending on how you want to define it. By treating it purely as an as another toaster right? We have ceded all of our authority to the private market. And, and now we're trying to claw back some space for the public when we realize that, you know, what the, you know what Kaplan's going to do? Make money. You know where you can't, it's really difficult to make money? Rural communities, remote communities, indigenous communities, low income communities, right? We see a tremendous amount of what's called digital redlining, where we see active discrimination against minority folks, against low income folks. All of this can be, you know, reduced boiled down to the fact that we're letting the private market pick winners and losers of connectivity Mm. which is really i mean it's fascinating to me as a concept because on the one hand i would think well the more customers or like people you have that are connected that can access like amazon or any other of the like huge you know websites right. right they can get services they could pay for goods they could do all of these transactions right like wouldn't that be good uh, but we don't ask Amazon to pay in to deployment, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it, it's in definitely in Amazon's interest to have more customers, right? But they're not the ones deploying the wires. And this is where there's an interesting idea being floated around right now. So a company like Netflix is part of you know the big companies that account for most of the traffic, the internet traffic, right? Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, they don't pay into any of this, right? When we think about who's doing the subsidies, it's it's the telecommunications providers, so there is an argument going around that we should be charging Netflix, Facebook, Amazon, or taxing them, and that money should go back into deployment. And I think that's a really innovative, innovative way to think about it. Because yeah, it would be in their best interest to have more customers, right? But they are not at all investing in this space, and maybe we should be forcing them to do that. Mm, that that's wild to me, and it's also yeah, because like what you're saying, it's you know like our roads or something. It there's the the hardware, the stuff that you need in order to just be connected to access anything at all. And then there's what's going on once you have accessed everything or you have the opportunity to kind of peruse the space. And so that's what I think is really interesting, too, when I'm thinking about broadband or connectivity or I'm talking with students about it, like what is the Internet? A lot of them are not talking about this part where it's, you know, the infrastructure, the wires, the competition or the lack thereof and who's connected and who isn't like most of us are just kind of turning on our Wi-Fi buttons and hoping for the best and end of story. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of curious too, like, 
I know we've talked about, you know, low-income communities, um, indigenous communities, communities that are largely struggling to even have the internet at all, right? And I'm curious about, did you find anything while you were doing this road tour that highlighted some of the the ways that communities beyond just the co-ops, right? Like, have there been like programs yeah, yeah. with libraries or like subsidies or like where are other locations oh, yeah, essentially yeah. Of, of connectivity happening in the lack of I mean, policy? I, we saw this a lot during the pandemic. Libraries became and continue to be the heroes of connectivity in un, un, underconnected communities. There's there's a great example in in Louisa County in Virginia, and they did use something called Wow's Wireless on Wheels, where they literally would like wheel in a solar powered hotspot for low income communities. Now these are just stock gaps, right? Like you know a hotspot is not going to do what what we all needed to do, but there's some re- really interesting innovation. Again, Wow's and also Cows Cellular on Wheels is another one that I I've been tr- I've been tracking. That's pretty cool. One of the things that I'm interested in how is how did McDonald's become part of the Great Connector during the pandemic? I mean. You've heard so many stories of folks driving to the parking lot of a McDonald's to piggyback off the Wi-Fi, right? Like, how did how did we all just end up going to Mickey D's? So, yeah, there are absolutely, you know, really innovative community solutions. I think one of the difficult things is oftentimes these are stock gaps, right? Stock gaps to stem the tide of a lack of deployment. We need to make sure that these are are, are more much more permanent. There's, there's also some great examples of digital training. Because remember I said that it's not just about all, it's not just about connectivity. There's also this other set of like, do you know how to use the network, for instance? And I, I love this story. I read it in CNET, the online tech news source. And they were talking about a community in Northern New York State that was training meals on wheels delivery drivers to be what's called digital navigators to help homebound folks troubleshoot their technology issues. That is Stunningly brilliant. There's another one in Northern Michigan called the Merit Network. And the Merit Network partnered with pizza parlors. And every time you got to take out pizza, you got an info sticker on broadband. This is how we got to reach the unconnected. It's meeting them where they are rather than forcing them to come to us. Right. And I love these innovative and most importantly, local and community solutions. You know, one of the things I write about and I, and I advocate for is that at the end of the day, all broadband is local. And that local broadband is the best broadband. That, that there is a power in a community coming together to plan for the digital future. And the fact that, you know, if your broadband's out and you see your provider at the grocery store, there's some accountability there, right? Versus mm-hmm. like the faceless, nameless folks at Comcast or AT&T. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. Christopher Ali about broadband, policy, internet access, and the public. Absolutely. And I know you've brought up a number of times some of the ways that co-ops have really, you know, charged in this space and they have been able Mm -hmm, to work mm -hmm. so beautifully with the needs of their community and also have that ownership of infrastructure that I think a lot of us 
don't even dream about, right? Like, we don't think about it, you know? And so, right, I'm right, curious, yeah, yeah. like, could you explain just a little bit about, you know, what are co-ops, you know, largely and like, what are they doing in these types of spaces just to contrast them between yeah. those large companies and, and what they're doing locally? Right. So a co-op is a member-owned, usually community member-owned business, right? We've got banking co-ops, um, you've got insurance co-ops. Um, Lando Lakes is a co-op, the butter company. Um, and uh, for, for broadband, we're generally seeing this happen with electric cooperatives and telephone cooperatives. And so uh, profits are redistributed back to members if there are profits. So technically it is a for, you know, it's a, it's a profitable company. It's not a public publicly owned entity, but it's a community owned entity. Um, and, and I, I think this is one of the reasons why we've seen co-ops be so successful in the broadband space is because they are embedded in the community and they are willing to take a much longer return on investment, sometimes up to 20 years um, to break even because they're seeing broadband as an investment in their communities because they are part of the community, right? Versus a shareholder-driven company, which needs quarterly returns on investments to meet their legal obligations to their shareholders. You're not going to find that in in small communities that are going to be able to return those type of numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's 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 an outlook. It's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of looking at technology and connectivity that I think cooperatives have um, that we need to be embracing and replicating. Um, you know, and and there's not to say that co-ops are, are you know there's there's problems with co-ops. I mean, electric cooperatives are notoriously conservative, not in their politics but in their finances. So it actually took a lot of kind of member movement to get them willing to deploy broadband because it's expensive it also ventures them into a new territory which is customer service um you know we don't uh if our toaster's broken we often don't call the electric company (laughs) but if our computer's not working we do often call our internet service provider um so that's it's a new type of business model for them but we have seen several hundred electric cooperatives especially in virginia um do some amazing um connectivity work there um so, uh, so yeah, I think I think that's really what it is with these telephone and electric cooperatives is the community focus that we're not getting with the larger companies. Yeah, yeah. and I I think that all completely checks out, especially when we think about what so much of our conversation has been about, which is the humanness of all of this. Like, yeah, absolutely. you know, who absolutely. better to talk about? what the needs of the community are and then address them, then the need, like the community itself, right? Like, you know, there, it's hard to that's say that that's think, a yeah. bad plan, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, and we, you know, like academics, you know, we all say like there are, you know, communities can also be exclusive, right? They also please their own boundaries of who can participate and who cannot. So there, there are challenges everywhere, but yeah. if you're weighing, you know, broadband provision and, and certainly I've done this in my work. Like I still I still place my money with local communities more than I do with these kind of national companies. Yeah. National for profit companies. Yeah. And I also I know you've highlighted a number of challenges that you've encountered while doing this work. Like we're talking even just understanding the legal definitions, how those are manifesting mm-hmm. in other policy moves or even financial moves. And I'm curious, you know, what are some of the other challenges that you've observed specifically related to broadband and policy spaces over the years? Maybe like, have they changed or are these still just recurring issues that keep coming up that aren't uh, yeah. getting fixed? By and large, the same conversation we had about broadband in the mid 2000s is the exact same conversation we're having now, which is which is vexing and heartbreaking, to be honest. 
in fact, I think we're finding more ways in which we are digitally dis disconnected, um, particularly because we've expanded the conversation around not just to talk about connectivity, but also about affordability and skills as well. So I think that's kind of like this kind of meta focus is that the conversation really hasn't changed that much, which is heartbreaking. On my end, one of the things that I'm finding frustrating at the policy level is the lack of a better word, like fetishization of numbers. Um, and, you know, so we're obsessed with money and, and what this definition of broadband is in terms of speeds, uh, points on maps, right? But like, we're forgetting about people. And and so this is a challenge I've I've encountered both working with Congress and the Federal Communications Commission is the type of work that I do. And this is this is very, this is a personal kind of frustration here. It's the type of work that I do is it's qualitative research. It's interpretive research, right? I don't, I don't have a hypothesis. I don't use the scientific method to do my research. I talk to people and I read documents and I interpret what they're saying. That's often dismissed as air quotes, everybody on this podcast, um, just stories. And, and sometimes, you know, the implication will be, okay, you've told me a story. Where's your data? Well, that is data. You know, a hundred interviews is data. So how do we get, policymakers and regulators to think about to think outside of the box of what constitutes informed work and informed research and to really embrace narratives and stories and therefore people and communities and families that's been my point of frustration for a number of years now is what counts as evidence at the policy level yeah which for me like hearing this obviously like i tend to be more in your direction where like I'm very interested in stories and people's experiences and I see mm -hmm. the value and the power of that. But I'm also just fascinated by how, especially in like federal spaces or even, you know, state spaces, the lived experiences or the things that you're presenting, right? Like the the true like facts of the matter in many cases, like how those are kind of forgotten or just erased or neglected or not seen as proof just because in so many other ways, I feel like the people are there to represent the people or they should right, be at least. Right, right, and so there's yeah, like this very yeah. like dissonant thing going on for me where it's like, okay, so they're hearing this, but then they're dismissing it. But it's like the, they're making rules or they're making decisions that impact those people. Like those yeah, are the people exactly, I think you should exactly. care about, you know? So it's yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah. it's pretty wild to me that that type of evidence isn't, isn't seen as evidence. And yeah, yeah. you know, I, I see that though in other spaces too. Like, I mean, gosh, you can sure. get into the arguments between different scientists and whatnot. And it's just like, everybody just like in this like number space. Right. And so, you know, I definitely hear that and I, I sympathize with that. And I hope that by highlighting and doing the work that you're doing, we can change that because I think it's super important. It's like, who are we here for? And if we're not here for the people, like, what are we doing? You know, so exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. That is that is that is exactly it. And and that, so that's something I've really been pushing with my with my own research and we we'll be pushing with my my future research as well. I know, too, you did mention earlier a little bit about like the erosion of trust with, you know, FCC or even just like I think public spaces in general. We're seeing a lot of erosion mm -hmm. of trust right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, like with your work, maybe in broadband or elsewhere, like what are you kind of observing in, in, in like maybe a trend that's happening in the sense of like trust and policy? What's going on? Hey, wow. That's, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't done a lot of work on how much we trust policymakers, but I, I um, have been working on a project around um, PBS and trust. And it does seem that PBS 
remains the most trusted public institution in the United States right now. Um, and, and my colleague, Hilda Vandenberg, um, and of Drexel University and Jonathan Krakow of University of Virginia are analyzing a national survey we did about why Americans trust PBS so much. One of the things that we found in that survey is, I think, a corollary to broadband, which is that we trust PBS because they have a local presence. So again, it goes back to this idea of local. Like we trust, for better or for worse, we trust folks who are local to us, right? And and this is I, uh, when I talk about Rock County. I mean, one of the reasons why they partnered with a, a cooperative in South Dakota is because they were local. They were 19 miles away. And and when I was doing interviews with the county administrator, he talked a lot about trust. He's like, I trust them because they're they're my neighbors. Right now, trust in neighbors are also going down. Right, this entire country is seeing a deficit of trust, um, trust in public institutions, pu- trust in journalism, trust amongst each other. Right, and this is uh, actually a lot of times I get some pushback when folks say, "Well, you know, you're pushing internet for everybody, and everyone should have the option to use the internet." But doesn't it just breed distrust and misinformation and disinformation? I mean, yes, but but it also does other things, right? And and so this is why when we think about connectivity, I think we need to be thinking about so much, so many more dynamics at the same time. And maybe trust is one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't consider, you know, if you think about where's the trust when you think about digital equity and inclusion, like how much do we trust our providers? Um, maybe that should be included as well. But I think this is the challenge. I'm going to give policymakers a break for a second and say this is the challenge to be a policymaker right now in broadband is that it's not just about connectivity, it's connectivity plus everything else. And that has to happen simultaneously. And that's been the difficult part, I think, for for a lot of folks. Yeah. And I wonder too, even going back to this idea of like utility, and I know I do want to possibly briefly touch on what, what Biden was talking about a little bit when he talked about broadband as utility. But there's this idea or this notion, like I, whenever I flip my light switch, I'm pretty much trusting that there's going to be light that's coming out mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. I've paid my bill and, you know, right. all is well in the world. Like, right. hopefully, hopefully I flip the switch and it's going to work. And hopefully I will have water when I turn the faucet and mm-hmm, any number mm-hmm, of things. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in, in some sense, like, I feel like we automatically give trust to infrastructure in this weird way that perhaps, you know, we don't with with broadband, especially if our lived experience is telling us it can't be reliable or it, it doesn't turn on right. when we need it. Right. right? And so right. Right. I also right. really like that you've highlighted just the the complexities. Obviously we're not going to solve trust in you know, one conversation or, <laughs> you know, I understand it completely, but yeah. it's yeah. just something I think about a lot. It's, it, it is really fascinating. And I love that you've talked about what you've done with PBS and the, the local aspects of trust. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I guess kind of circling back to this idea of what Biden was talking about has there been any notable change since this? I think you mentioned it was 2021. So it's been a couple of years now. Like what has happened since, you know, he talked about broadband as a utility? Well, just to clarify, he said it was electricity. Um, ah. He didn't actually use the word utility. And I think I think that's an important distinction. Yep. Well, one of the things we're, we're finding, I mean, so the Infrastructure Act is the largest public investment in telecommunications in this country's history. $65 billion is going to be spent in, in the broadband space. And that includes $14 billion for affordability, $42 billion for connectivity, and $2.75 billion for digital equity and inclusion. Tremendous amounts of money. Um, most of it is going to be uh, channeled to states who will then decide who wins, who wins this money. It's both 
replicating some existing problems, right? Um, we still don't know who has and who doesn't have broadband. The broadband maps are still a, still a colossal mess. Are states going to be ready to handle billions and billions and billions of dollars in, in grants? And how are they going to vet that? Of course, we're also seeing the largest providers try and claw their way into this money. Um, so will we be seeing what I call the largest and the loudest providers win out over everyone else again? But it's going to make a huge difference if we do it well. The problem, though, and the concern that I have, and this literally sometimes keeps me up at night, is how well are we going to do this? How well are we, how much are we prepared to be able to access billions, tens of billions of dollars? Mm-hmm. You know, money is just the first step. It might not even be the first step. It might be like the minus one step and everything else comes after the money. But we need to be prepared. And and some states are, some states aren't. We need to make sure communities are ready. We need to make sure, you know, th- speaking about trust, one of the interesting things I found are these kind of snake oil consultants who are going to communities and saying, hey, I'll write your digital equity plan for you for, you know, $100,000, something ridiculous like that. Who do we trust in this space, right, to to get us to where we need to be digitally? It raises, you know, mo, mo money, mo problems, I guess. Isn't that, <laughs> isn't that the 90s thing? Um, and, and so, like, it's, it's a tremendous amount of money. We need to make sure that we're spending it wisely, efficiently, and democratically. That is definitely a worry of mine these days. Yes, yes. I think too, I'm pretty sure I was, I want to say it was when you were speaking with our class or when someone was speaking with our class, like some of the states you were describing, like literally have like one or two employees. Oh yeah. Who are supposed yeah, to be like yeah. doing this job. And it's just like, um. <laughs> right. Yeah. Some states are very far behind, Yeah, uh, you know, the ball when it comes to, when it comes to being able to access and get ready for this money that's going to come down the pipes in the next few years. Yeah. 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 So definitely things for all of us to kind of, I guess, just be mindful of and potentially mm-hmm. like even advocate for. Like, Well, that's the other thing. Is it's an opportunity for us to get involved. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's kind of, I guess, like one of the last questions I wanted to ask you today is like, what kind of future do you hope for with broadband access and like in a perfect world what would policy and the everyday life kind of do for each other wow that's a, that's a great question um <laughs> you know i i struggle with like in a perfect world versus a, a real political world because like you know if we if in a perfect world we would probably have a broadband network a fiber to the home network that models the highway system publicly funded in which then all types of different enterprises could sit on top of that publicly owned network that's the dream. I can't see a way towards that. I honestly can. I hate being able to say that. I mean, Mark Fisher once said, drawing on Frederick Jameson, that it's harder to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I sympathize with that. So how can we do better in an imperfect world? To me, it starts with the grassroots, it starts with communities, getting folks informed, finding your digital champions, training your digital navigators, getting people involved, educating folks about what connectivity means, but also digital literacy and skills so we can find that mis- and disinformation and we know what's going on on our Facebook feeds. I mean, there's so much to do. And so it's one of those things where it's going to take a ton of money, which means the federal government has to be involved, states have to be involved. This is an all-hands-on-deck situation to get us where we need to be. And we also need to like abandon some of the hype and some of the myths around this space. Like, There's no race to 5G. That's probably a different podcast altogether, right? But these these kind of fabricated political myths that we're losing something. What we're losing is the ability to connect. That's mm. what's happening at the end of the day. And how do we regain that? And that, again, it goes back to trust. Maybe this whole thing is actually about trust. Goodness. To me and my my work and, and 
it goes back to local communities and making sure that they are ready and equipped and empowered to make the right choices for themselves. Yes. That like self-advocacy piece of all of this. Like I believe I can do something or I can understand something or have action. Or I I know even where to find the tools to help me be able to do this. And I think so many folks in so many communities aren't, you know, and it's not just local, it's not just rural, right? 18% of New York city doesn't have access to the internet. You know, so that's one of the myths too around this is that it's just a rural problem or it's just a poverty problem or something like that, right? Yep. It is an everyone problem. Yep. That's yep. the other thing we need to understand. Yeah. Like everything's networked. We are all interconnected somehow, you know, and for better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I guess finally, like a lasting, you know, take home for the people might be like, have you encountered any resources you think are doing a tremendous job or at least to just maybe a start if people are interested? Oh, in yeah. More? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance is phenomenal. They're really spearheading the charge on what is digital inclusion and digital navigators. The Benton Foundation, or which is now called the Benton Institute for Broadband and Society. I had the great honor of being a fellow for them for a couple of years. They're doing some amazing advocacy work. Uh, Shelby, SHLB, the Schools, Health, Libraries, and Broadband Coalition, amazing work to make sure that our schools and health centers are connected. Next Century Cities has done some incredible work uh, making sure communities are empowered to make the right choices for their digital futures. Some of these organizations are just incredible, and I have the great pleasure and great honor of being able to work uh, work with them and, and, and be friends with them. And so those are some of the ones. I'm sure there's more, and I'm sure goodness, folks are going to be upset that I didn't mention them, but maybe though that will be able to get us get us started. No, I love that. And if people wanted to learn more about your work, where could they where could they find oh, you? Well, you can find me on Twitter, Ali underscore Christopher. I'm not on the social medias that much anymore. But my my public writing is available. If you Google me, my book is available, my books are available wherever you buy books. And you know, I, I'm, I also do a lot of podcasts like this. And, and it's a great opportunity to, to talk about the research and talk about what what I'm so passionate about. So yeah, I, you know, I hate to say this, but you can Google me and you'll find a lot of my public writing, a lot of my thoughts on connectivity and digital equity. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation and I, I think this it's super, super powerful what you're doing. So keep it up. And we, we really so appreciate, we appreciate your time today. So thank you for being here. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Dr. Christopher Ali. I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Economies Design Lab. This show is produced by Skylar Hugh. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. I'd also like to thank MedLab and KGNU for the opportunity to host and produce Looks Like New over the last few years. This is my final conversation as I'm moving on from MedLab and CU Boulder next month, and it has been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you all. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas. You can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.eu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.